Hey everybody, and welcome to Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's podcast, where we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's going on on campus and around the world. And today we're talking news deserts with Penny Muse Abernathy, the Knight Chair in Journalism and Digital Media Economics at the UNC School of Media and Journalism. In a report that you authored that was released just last month called The Rise of the New Media Baron and the Emerging Threat of News Deserts, you talk a lot about how local reporting is sort of dying off as large companies focus more on the bottom dollar than on the community paper itself. And it's creating this concept called news deserts. So we should probably start this out by asking, what do you really mean by a news desert? Well, a news desert is basically an area where no journalistic organization, whether profit or nonprofit has the financial means to actually survive and sustain itself over the long term. There are really two types of news deserts. A lot of attention has been focused in recent years on our largest papers. And what I wanted to do was look at what was happening in the rest of the country, beyond the New York Times, beyond the wall, the Washington Post. So the two types of news deserts are one, a news desert that actually exists. It's a, it's a community or a region without a news organization. And quite typically, it is a community or region without a newspaper. So in small and mid-sized communities, the newspaper is has often been the prime source, if not the sole source, of local news and information. So when we did our survey, and it covered a period from 2004 through 2016, we found that more than 50 dailies had closed. They ranged in size from 5,000 daily all the way up to a hundred and some odd thousand daily. So those are communities without newspapers for the most part now. And then we found that there being a net loss of about more than 500 weeklies in regions around the country. So that's the first type of a news desert. And then there is the threat of news deserts. So the, the report is entitled The Emerging Threat of News Deserts. And so I would call these endangered regions, regions that are about to tip over. And typically what that is, is a community in which the news organization, the newspaper, is just hanging on financially by the skin of its teeth. What's causing these news deserts? Is it the overall economy or is it something that's just happening in the newspaper industry? There have been two financial assaults on newspapers. The first started in 2000 and we didn't notice it. And if you look back at 2000, the print advertising, which has historically sustained, at least for the last hundred years, has sustained most newspapers. So let me first disabuse anybody of the notion that the subscription they paid in the past did anything more than simply cover what the cost of the gasoline probably to distribute the paper. So newspapers have historically depended on advertising to produce at least 80 percent of their revenue. And so that started declining as people started moving to digital platforms. So by 2010, the level of advertising revenue in newspapers had declined below 1950. Isn't that amazing? In 10 years, it fell below where it had been in 1950. So it was a very steep decline. And then, of course, just at the moment when you could least afford it in 2008, we had the Great Recession. (laughs) And so newspapers that were just hanging on, many felt that they had to sell because they couldn't see a way out. So you had a lot of family companies that decided this is not for the faint of heart and we, we, we need to get out while we can. And then you had some newspapers that were teetering on bankruptcy going into it. And then, of course, the other thing, too, is when you have something like this, when you have distressed properties, who's going to buy them? Right. So one of the problems is the large public change, such as a Gannett, such as a McClatchy, had just taken out a lot of loans and bought newspapers right before the collapse. 
So here they are saddled with newspapers, and they're kind of out of the market. And then the other thing is if you're going through bankruptcy, the price of a newspaper plummets almost overnight. So in 2008, a newspaper typically sold, a good family newspaper in a mid-sized market, sold for between 13 and 15 times earnings. That's nice, not bad, yearly earnings or cash flow. By 2009, most newspapers were selling between three and five times earnings. So you got distressed properties, you got your usual suspects, the major chains are out of, out of pocket. So what happens is in rushes, a kind of a passive investor. So back in the 90s, hedge funds, pension funds, and to a degree, some private equity funds started taking out stakes in, in newspaper companies because they had great returns. You know, they were pretty consistent. They had nice profit margins. And suddenly, as they see the value of the newspapers go down, they start thinking, boy, if a newspaper sells for three times earnings, I can go in and get my money back in three years. And if I've managed it very successfully, I can sell it. And so that has been basically what has happened. Between 2004 and 2016, more than a third of all newspapers changed hands. A third of all of 8,000 newspapers in this country changed hands. And I would say a good portion of them, at least a quarter, were sold two and three times. So it has been a real topsy-turvy market for newspapers. They've gone back and forth. And the other thing that's interesting to note is that these new media barons, as we're calling them, so they're very different from the public chains that we knew in the past, these new media barons are much more focused on maximizing shareholder value. You know, that's that's their whole purpose is to, and many of these media barons are part of a minuscule part of huge equity funds. So one of the largest newspaper chains in the country is owned by Fortress Investments, which has 70 billion in assets. And the newspapers of the 600 newspapers don't amount to even a percent of the total annual revenue of what they actually bring in. And so they're focused on shareholders. So what they typically do is they go in, they cut cost. They often blur the line between journalism and the advertising sales. There's a lack of commitment to the community they're in. If the newspaper, if they can't sell the newspaper, they're not above closing it, uh, going out. And, and then they, they don't have an interest in doing the kind of public service journalism that many of the newspapers define themselves with in the past going forward. So you end up with newspapers that are on for a short period of time. At best, they try to boost up the bottom line, often with cost cutting, and then they sell them or they just kind of manage the decline. And when they're no longer profitable, they just shut the door. In your opinion, what is the role of local news or community newspaper? What are we losing when one of these papers closes? One of the seminal pieces of research done on newspapers was back in the 70s at the School of Media and Journalism, in which two professors who were then here, two scholars, showed that newspapers, local newspapers especially, have the potential to set the agenda for debate of public policy issues. So they identify the issues because they had more reporters, because they tended to be in the communities. They were the ones who, who got the stories first. And in fact, a recent, well, a lot of recent reports, but one in particular, the FCC, noted that some estimates say as many as 85% of the news that feeds local democracy comes from newspapers. And if you think about it, that's probably right. New York Times can't be everywhere. Neither can a Raleigh News and Observer, so you have to depend on having feet on the ground. They also perform two other important functions. One is they encourage economic development, and they do that in the simplest way by putting consumers in touch with the businesses and the communities that they're there. But in a in more indirect and long-term way, they can often spot problems that will cause 
economic harm in the future, environmental issues, a whole range of things that they could investigate. And then finally, they build geographic cohesion, and that's just as important in the digital age as it was when we were first expanding west, and the first thing most founders of cities wanted to do was establish a newspaper. Usually they'd have a slogan, best newspaper west of the Mississippi or something like that, or best best uh, town west of the Mississippi uh, for their slogan. One of my favorite expressions says a good newspaper shows you how you're related to people you may not know you're related to. With so much attention now on the bottom dollar at these community and local newspapers, do you think reporters are losing sight of that goal and what their mission is as a local reporter? I think that it's it's a survival of the fittest right now, and I think even the best of chains have had to make drastic cuts. So if you look at something like the NNO, for instance, which in the 1980s, 1990s, we could say it covered all of eastern North Carolina kind of like kudzu or covered it like the dew, if you want to use the Atlanta Constitution uh, motto. They've gone from, and I think the news reports have said they've gone from more than 400 in their newsroom to down below 100 now. One of the things that was nice, they also had a network a strong network of stringers they could rely on at a lot of the other newspapers. So we know in the industry as a whole, almost 40 percent, it's lost almost 40 percent of its reporters and news news editors on the ground. So it, it affects, it's across, it's across the board. So if you've got the Fayetteville Observer who's, ha- who's just been purchased and they've lost staff from the purchase, so they've had to pull back from the 10 counties they used to cover. That leaves those 10 counties without, without anybody except maybe the, the small daily paper that's owned by an investment company there, which has maybe one reporter covering everything. So you, you just kind of followed on back up to Raleigh and, you know, you think about the floods that we had with Matthew. It was very hard for the NNO to offer the kind of comprehensive coverage to know exactly and these were some of the poorest counties in the state. And that was that was the benefit of having the watchdog of both the Fayetteville Observer followed by the even bigger NNO. And now both of them have kind of pulled back. And so you, you, these counties are kind of cut loose and left on their own. And, you know, in many ways, you could see more of what was going on in, in Lumberton at one point by watching the network news where they managed to get in. They love following disasters. But it's the aftermath of the disaster where, you, where a newspaper really comes in. The network news will be there for two days. The flood waters, they move on. They've got their headlines, and they move on to the next disaster. And what you really depend on in a community like that in terms of recovery is having somebody who sits there who talks about the pollution that came from the hog lagoons that overflowed. And we need to remember the NNO won the Pulitzer Public Service back in the 90s for documenting and researching the pollution and the harm, the environmental harm that could come from a hog farm. So if that series had not run and newspapers had not prevented the the hog farms from continuing to expand, can you imagine how much worse the environmental disaster would have been post that. But I mean, it's still it's, it's still been a spotty thing. The same thing with elections, which we see where uh, in the most recent elections. And we're in the process right now of doing a content analysis of six papers down in Southeast. And whereas most of them would have had endorsements in the past, one of the things that investment firms often do is stop doing endorsements. And if you think that has been a critical, I would say, service for those of us who often don't know who to vote for in the local or the regional or state elections, we depend on the newspaper serving as sign of a filter, asking the important questions, and at least asking questions and printing the answers. Most of them didn't do that, but, even, uh, but, but also making recommendations, too. 
So then how do we fix these news deserts? Is this just the new reality or is there a way back to where local reporting has its place again? I sure hope so. That's where I've spent the last uh, eight years of my life on this. I think that the newspaper industry has come to terms that the past is is gone. <laughs> and the, the business model that we had in the past is dead. And they're beginning to try very hard to make this transition. I say to people all the time, I'm not talking about saving newspapers on print, right? I am very keen on saving that very critical function that the newspapers have served to build community and form and and help create the news that feeds democracy. And so I think for the newspaper industry, the most important issue is figuring out new streams of revenue. Print advertising is not coming back. And one of the things we found when we've done research is even in very small, isolated communities, more than half of the re- revenue right now is leaving the market, is going to places like Facebook and Google. So you've got to stop thinking about just servicing your advertisers with the advertisements in your newspaper. You've got to think about servicing all of their needs, in essence, creating a, an ad agency or marketing agency. And if you can, we've had quite a bit of success with papers in pretty remote and also economically distressed markets being able to boost revenue 20 and 30 percent over a year's period of time by, by offering services instead of just ads from all of that. I've spoken to more than three dozen news press associations, done workshops for them over the last two years, and I would say there's a huge receptivity among the press associations to understand they can't just lobby for a First Amendment. They've got to start collaborating with schools and universities just like us in coming up with new innovative ways of doing this. There won't be one single business model that applies to every community, but we can learn what does work, what doesn't, and kind of begin to fit it together with what works going forward. It's incumbent upon us as a university to begin making sure we're training our students, not in the old style, but to come go out, whether you're, you're doing advertising, whether you're doing journalism, whether you're doing public relations. Public relations advertising are almost merging today. It's hard to tell the the difference in that. Help them kind of come together. And then I think the other thing is newspapers need to get over the fact that they're not competing against the other newspaper. (laughs) They're not competing against the other medium, whether it's the local TV station or not. And they need to start thinking about forming networks. There have been quite a few good networks formed up in other areas of the state between public radio stations and newspapers. And they need to start figuring out how they share things when there's a situation like a flood, but also sharing data that gives a picture of a region so people can understand how they're related to people they may not knew they were related to. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. And don't forget to check back to unc.edu next week for another episode of Well Said.